This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come by the fire. And once again, I'm hearing an echo. <laughs> Not sure why. Um, Carlos Kajina is our technical producer. Ryan White is our live stream producer. Check out my YouTube Rumble channels, Strange Planet, and uh, don't forget to subscribe. Family therapist and expert on the phenomenon of near-death experiences and shared death experiences is here. And uh, an SDE, if you're not familiar, is where one feels that one has participated in a dying person's transition to a post-mortem existence. Uh, William Peters founded the Shared Crossing Project to raise awareness about the profound and healing experiences that are possible for the dying and their loved ones at the end of life. He's a marriage and family therapist at the Family Therapy Institute of Santa Barbara. He holds a Master's of Education with a focus in group dynamics from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, And William directs the Shared Crossing Research Initiative, the first research-based program designed to examine the causes and uh, strategies for enabling the shared death experience. William served as a hospice volunteer with the Zen Hospice Project at Laguna Honda Hospital in San Francisco. He has had two near-death experiences and a variety of SDEs that inform his work. He also leads the Shared Crossing Pathway Program, Life Beyond Death Groups, and the new Shared Crossing Concept Group for end-of-life professionals. As a um, psychotherapist, he specializes in end-of-life and bereavement counseling and past-life regression therapy. He's the author of At Heaven's Door. William, welcome. How are you? I'm good, Richard. Really uh, wonderful to be with you this evening. Likewise, likewise. Uh, let's begin at the beginning. Uh, your uh, your first shared death experience when you were working as a volunteer in in a hospice. Yeah. So yeah, here I am. You know, just doing my hospice volunteer work, uh, as you noted at uh, Laguna Honda Hospital in San Francisco. This is a large public 
hospital, old, old uh, structure. So you can imagine 24-bed open ward hospice. So just think curtains, no separate bed, no separate wall, no walls separating the rooms, anything like that. And the reason I share that is because uh, you have, you know, this is also a, a hospice that's treating indigent people. So the turnover is really high. So you can imagine people that are homeless, people that are really on the edge, people that go into a hospital but don't have any insurance. And as they're getting close to death, the hospital ship them over to the hospice. So there's a high turnover of, of, of patients in the hospice ward, which basically means patients are coming in, staying you know, a few days in most cases, and dying. And what that means for those of us as volunteers, certainly this is now going back a couple decades. I don't know how it is now in this hospice ward, but in those days, um, we, would, you know, we would have people dying pretty much you know, on a regular basis during our shifts. And so, for me, on this particular afternoon, I'd actually been working with, uh, we'll call him Ron, not just a pseudonym. You know, Ron had been unresponsive for, you know, a number of days. And in Ron's case, he'd been in on hospice, in this hospice, for about uh, certainly three weeks or so. So I had really actually developed... Um, a relationship with them as, as best you can. Like I said, he was unresponsive for the last part of this. And, and when I say unresponsive, that means he, he is not responding to any, you know, conversational cues. Uh, basically, he looks like he's sleeping all the time. But as we know in hospice work, the last sense, the last sense to um, go away or to die, essentially, is hearing. So we have, a, as hospice workers, our practice is to always announce what we're doing, even though it looks like our patients are sleeping. So we'll say, you know, hey, you know, Ron, I'm here. I uh, want to know that I'm going to sit down and uh, read a book for you, and we're going to go back and read Call of the Wild by Jack London. We stopped, you know, at you know, Chapter 3 last time. I'm going to pick it up there. So here I am. This is the routine. So I'm reading Call of the Wild, as I had done many afternoons with Ron, and in the middle of this reading, I just pop out of my body. Here I am. I, as I'm now above my body, suspended above my body. Not that far. I can see the crown of my head. I can actually see the book. I can't quite see the words in the book, but I can certainly see the lines uh, in, in the book, if you will. And I can see Ron, you know, from now above, uh, no difference, unresponsive, prone in his bed. But to my right is Ron. Ron, I can see his face. I can see his eyes glowing with aliveness and vitality, which is in stark contrast to his unresponsive body down below in the bed. And he's got a big smile on his face. And he's energetic. And he is communicating with me, saying, you know, check this out. This is where I have been. And I'm just taking this in going, whoa. Now, I'd had uh, a couple of near-death experiences previous to this, and I did have a, um, a shared death experience, but not to this magnitude or not with this much clarity uh, and crispness uh, previous. In this case, how, how is he, I was excuse me, right oh, William, how is he? how is he communicating with you? Oh, yeah, so it was all telepathic. I mean, it was like it wasn't like he was moving his his voice. I mean, excuse me, moving his mouth. 
Um, but it was just, he was communicating clearly to me um, in the sense that I knew that he knew I was there. He was uh, kind of happy that I was there. And it, I got the sense he was showing me that this is where he was. Now, I will say there are some types of communication I've had in this space that are a lot uh, clearer in terms of um, like why, you know, questions or responses or direct messages. In this case, it was just clear that he knew I was there, and I, I seemed to, I think more on the level, level of intuiting, but quite strongly, that he was happy that I was to show me this. Um, but it wasn't like a direct messaging. And that, and I will say, in most of the shared death experiences that I have uh, had myself and our research, there's a clear sense of communication where the experiencer will say, I just knew. I mean, I knew as clear as I'm talking to you now. So this was a little less like that, and I can't really say why. It just was. And did William look like, was it the, the same sort of you know, indigent, sickly uh, Ron that you were seeing uh, that was lying in the bed, or was this a, a more youthful, uh, healthy-looking Ron? That's a great question, and this is something we see in our research almost all the time when the shared death experiencers report seeing the deceased, well, seeing the dying or any other deceased in the afterlife, they tend, and I'll say with Ron, which is consistent with the research, Ron looked uh, vital, healthy, alive. Um, he looked a little bit younger, but not like super youthful. And some of the research we see is that the, especially when you see the deceased loved ones who greet the dying uh, as the dying, you know, transition into the afterlife, the, the deceased loved ones typically, typically look a lot younger, a lot healthier. They almost look like they're in the prime of their life. Uh, in this case with Ron, he looked healthier for sure. Like I said, his eyes were bright and light shining through. But he didn't look like, you know, if I've, you know Ron was probably in his 70s. He might have looked like he was a uh, healthy, vital man in his 60s. But in most cases, when the research, you know, now we have over 250 deeply analyzed cases, what we see is somebody who died, whether 70, 80, 90, whatever, uh, they'll, they may show up um, in their 20s, in their 30s, like usually at their prime and sporting an outfit that was probably an activity or uh, presentation that they're most proud of. And and when this shared experience, shared shared death experience happened, did that happen at the moment that his spirit or soul left his body? So this is a, another great question here. So um, in this case, Ron died a day or two later, and and we have found in our research that twenty three percent of shared death experiences happen hours or days either before or after the medically defined time of death. Of course, medically defined time of death would be cessation of brain activity uh, and or uh, heart, heartbeat stopping. So uh, in this case, like I said, I think a day or two, this SDE happened a day or two before Ron died. Um, and I'll be really clear and say that happens in 9% of our cases. We have 
early SDEs, and then 13% happen after, you know, the, a death a day, um, hours or days later. Uh, so but we, the way we know this is an SDE rather than, say, a pre-death dream or vision or post-death dream or, dream or vision is because of the pattern. And the pattern we look for in the SDE is this, that there's some sense of a journey. There's also these NDE qualities, like near-death experience qualities. Um, and the other piece we see, which you, is that strong bond between the uh, experiencer and the, you know, the, the participant, the person dying. Now, in this case with Ron, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, you didn't have that strong of a bond. Well, as it turns out, I actually did have a really strong bond with, with uh, Ron because he had no loved ones. He was indigent, and I had been with him a few days, uh, more than a few days, actually, up for a week and a half. And, and there was a bond. Even before he um, became uh, unconscious, if you will, I, I'd already had a relationship with him, joking, talking about his life. So I might have been, at the end of his life, one of his closest relations. Um, and the other thing, the journey motif is not as active in Ron's case as we see in other cases. But with Ron, which is so interesting, is that this is the very beginning of his journey. Because he was communicating to me, this is where I have been. This is where I've been hanging out. But I also got a sense in what he was saying to me was, this is where I'm going, and this is I'm kind of titrating back and forth between being in that physical body and being here. So he's talking about the initial stages of journey. Uh, not as pronounced as you see in most SDEs, but certainly enough to be radically different than a dream visitation, uh, excuse me, than a vision or visitation pre or post death, because in those there's a completely different agenda. So when you're looking at Ron and you're both, you're, you're hovering above your body, he's hovering above his body, did you get a glimpse in and around Ron? I mean, where was he? Where were you? I mean, I know you were above your body, but where, where did you go? Yeah. So this is what we call a co-experienced out-of-body experience. So we call it a co-OBE, two persons sharing an out-of-body experience together. I was clearly in a parallel universe in the sense that here I am with Ron, and I, and I have this ability, as I explained before, to see my body and his body down below. I even see myself reading down below. Like, I don't, best I can tell, I couldn't see my mouth moving, but best I could tell, I was, I did not stop reading there. Uh, so, parallel universe happening, you know, concurrently, and I just think, you know, I just think I just ha I'm just in that same um, space, if you will, the, the, it's a large room, but I'm up elevated, so I'm up near the ceiling, and I'm with Ron, but I'll tell you, as I'm looking at Ron, Ron has kind of darkness around him. It's not, I mean, I'm not seeing him like he's in that space, if you will. Like, I'm not seeing the ceiling. I'm not, if I was looking through him, I'm not seeing other hospital, um, other, you know, none of the other physical features of that hospital. I'm just seeing darkness behind him. So as I'm looking at him, he's in a different realm. But I seem to be 
kind of above my body in this realm, but I can also see the human realm as well. So, great question. I don't. I, that's just the best I can make of it. It's almost like I'm straddling. I'm in this other realm, but I'm kind of like it seems like Ron is more into it because he doesn't have any of the physical trappings of the hospital. When you're having that shared death experience. Uh, either you or in any of the other, as you mentioned, 250 in-depth analyzed cases, do you as a participant feel the the same pull to go wherever he's going? Like, I don't want to go back to my body. I want to go with this person. Yeah, that's great. You know, you're tapping into something there, Richard, that as you know from the near-death experience literature, most near-death experiencers, when they're in that space, uh, in the NDE space, don't want to return. In this case, with Ron, I, I'm, in, I'm enjoying myself up there, but I'm actually just with him, and I don't have any preference. I don't seem to have any choice in sense, like, it's not like I... It's not like I'm saying I want to stay here or I, or I want to go, don't want to go back to my body or I do want to go back to my body. It's just kind of like I was there, and then that space just ended. That, that experience just ended. It wasn't a particularly long time, I will say that. Some SDEs are very long. Uh, at least, you know, time-space continuum is, is hard to – it's not the same. But oh, And the 250-plus cases – most SDEers do not express a desire to stay there, uh, nor do they express a strong desire to go back to their life, uh, human life. It's as if they're along for this journey, they're in it fully, they're observing it, and then all of a sudden they realize either they're back in their physical body or they come to a boundary. Uh, typically, you know, there are many ways to see a boundary or um, border uh, to which they respond with, oh, my gosh, I can't go any further, and then they realize they're back in their body. The minute they realize there's a boundary, they're pretty much back in their body. So there are some significant differences between the SDE experience and the NDE experience in that regard. So, yeah, I think I, I hope I answered that well enough, Richard. Did I yes, get to your absolutely, point absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so I get a sense it's not it's not as profound an experience for someone as an, an NDE. Well, I would so I would, be, I, that, I would say that's not the correct language because uh. I think it's as profound. I think it's a, it's it's a very similar mm. phenomena in terms of a, a very similar experience in terms of phenomenological features, like there are. Uh, you see the out-of-body experience. Uh, you can go into heavenly realms. You can have a life review. Yourself, you can have a life review. You can share in the dying person's life review. You can have a review of your time together with the dying and yourself. You kind of shared life review. You can see the boundary. You can see deceased loved ones, a welcoming party. You can see elevated beings. Uh, all of this, angels is often referred to in this realm. It's very similar phenomenologically to the NDE. The difference is, I think there's some, um, uh, in the NDE, there's always that question of, will I return to this life or will I not? 
That's a difference in the NDE. Uh, you know in the literature, I'm, I know in the literature, and I, Rich, I know you're up on this, is that some NDEers don't want to come back to their human lives. Right. Very few actually express uh, a desire to go back to their human lives, even if they have families and such. Some do, but very few. And so, but there is that kind of negotiation with um, the forces that be over there. Usually it's defined as the light, because in 75% of NDEs, there's a dominant, numinous light that they're kind of, that they're kind of realizing is in charge of this, maybe a, a, the source or God or whatever your spiritual tradition might um, ascribe to that force being. But it is in charge, and they're negotiating with that light. In the SDE, there's really no sense of negotiation because there's no sense in the SDE experiencer that, they're, that they have a choice here. Like, they don't feel like they're dying. In an NDE, there's a sense that, they've, you know, that they know that they're out of their body, they've left their body, they, their life has been threatened in some way. And in the SDE, that's not it. The SDE has a very observational view. You're a spectator for a profound experience that can be every bit as profound as an NDE. It's just not uh, on the table, this question of will you return to your body or will you not? Will you essentially die and go into the afterlife or not? That doesn't seem to, to arise for SDE experiences. We don't have that. There is a fear sometimes initially when they feel a pull on their body saying, I don't want to die. But once they get through that pull and they realize what they've been asked or what they've been made privy to, which is sharing in the journey of, typically of a loved one who's dying or transitioning, once they realize that's the frame, the question about their... Um, terminalness, if you will, uh, and not returning to their human life is off the table. All right, William, we'll take a quick time out, come back and discuss further. William Peters, founder of the Shared Crossing Project, sharedcrossing.com, will tell you about an online course as well. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. William Peters is with us, founder of the uh, Shared Crossing Project. And tell us about the um, this online uh, program that's happening Wednesday, starting April 27th, William. Oh, yeah. So we have a course. Um, you know, we've moved all of our programs online during COVID. And actually, it took us a while to actually move our programs into this format because we traditionally, our programs, just to go back a step, our programs are really to raise awareness and educate people about not just shared death experiences, but the whole host of other end-of-life experiences. And the reason we want to do that is because we find when people know about these experiences, it does a few things. One is it really allows them to be more curious, receptive, and at peace about uh, this process of death and dying. So we call these courses, we have a variety of courses. The one that we have coming up right now is, um, is I think it's called Waking Up to the SDE and, and the Power of Love and Life. And that course uh, really is... Well, it is the first course actually ever taught, either you know, in real time or online or in person, what have you, that's 
dedicated to you know 10.5 hours of exploration and definition around the shared death experience and we'll talk about the patterns the typologies these are things these are uh, understandings that I've developed now over you know a couple of decades of really studying these experiences and really give people a, a map of how these experiences work and how you can make them happen and some key features that are just so wonderful to know about. This feature, one is this, this notion of a conductor, which is I am increasingly um, feeling like there is a force that is in charge of managing the transition of souls or spirits or consciousnesses within the human body from that human existence into the afterlife. And sometimes you see that conductor represented in a form of an angel or a spirit guide or an elevated being of some type. And sometimes you just feel and sense it. Uh, but like I'm saying, the, this course online, uh, which starts the end of, I think it's the last Thursday in April, we'll meet seven times for 90 minutes. It's, you know, I will show lots of videos of first-hand accounts from our research of people talking about their experiences. I'll analyze them, break them down, tell you what's so important about them, and then eventually, you know, teach people, you know, what are the means to, to have these experiences. Um, and we've done a good deal of research on that, although I will say, um, as much as we're learning about the SDE first, you know, my institute, the Shared Crossing Research Initiative, is the first institute ever to dedicate itself to studying the shared death experience. So this is very, very nascent research. It's groundbreaking. It's been featured in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, which is one of the most respected uh, hospice and palliative care journals, you know, in existence. So it's people know these experiences are out there. Experts are know they're out there. It's just that we're the first um, organization to really, really uh, break it down, categorize it, give people a, a map for how to deal with it. So another thing about this course, which is great, is you'll get an opportunity to do a lot of uh, experiential exercises, group dynamics, think group exercises, where you'll meet other people who are interested in not just uh, the shared death experience, but also becoming conscious uh, about what is possible and how you can craft the best end-of-life experience for you and your loved ones. Oh, I can so, say one thing. Richard, I yeah. would um, like to extend to all of your listeners, um, a 10% discount off of this. So if you go there, there's, if you're interested, you can see the course, and just um, type in all caps, SHARED CROSSING 10, SHARED CROSSING 10. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, as Richard and we've talked before, I, I think yes. I really love your shows. I love the sophistication um, and thoughtfulness you bring to your interview. So to me, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to extend that to your audience because I assume they'll be great people for our community, and I want to encourage them uh, to consider that. Well, I appreciate that, and I, I know my listeners do as well. And uh, share, uh, sharedcrossing.com is the website, sharedcrossing.com. And again, that yeah. course, it's uh, Wednesdays, 5 to 6.30 p.m. That's Pacific uh, Coast time. April twenty seventh right. to Thursday. June eighth. Right. It's Wednesdays. Yeah. Yes, Wednesdays. So getting back to Ron, the the patient that we were talking about uh, at the Laguna Honda Hospice in San Francisco, and after your shared death experience, he died the next day. Were you with him at the moment of death? I was not. I was not. 
I was aware that he died because I got notification that he had died, uh, but I was not with him. And when you're at a distance from a dying patient, uh, I mean, does does the does the intensity or the nature of the experience, the shared death experience, change depending on your proximity? Yeah. So this is a, this is a major breakthrough in our research, and that is that previous uh, research was really more based on uh, people sending in first-hand accounts to you know different different researchers studying end-of-life phenomena more generally. You know, so there's you know DOPS, Department of Perceptual Studies. Uh, University of Virginia, great group of researchers, Bruce Grayson and others there. Um, and then Raymond Moody as well. They received a lot. Raymond in particular wrote the first book on the SDE. In fact, he popularized the term shared death experience with his 2010 book, Glimpses of Eternity. And But all of these accounts previously had been at the bedside. And there was no real appreciation for these remote SDEs. And when we say remote SDE, what we mean is that the experiencer is not in the room. Like, they could be down the hall, they could be in the kitchen, they could be somewhere else in the house, they could be, you know, across town, or they can be across the globe somewhere. What we found is that there is very little difference between a remote SDE and a bedside SDE. And, and something else is 64% of our accounts ended up being remote, and we were stunned by that. But what we found is the more we started talking and I started lecturing about remote SDEs, all of a sudden people started realizing, wait a minute, when my loved one died, I had a similar experience, but it wasn't until I heard you lecture on it that I actually remembered the depth of it and usually the remote SDEs will happen, you know, in some proximity to the, similar to I just said before, remote, obviously a bedside SDE or a remote SDE, you might think at a bedside you'd have the SDE at the same time. Not necessarily. There's a lot of people that are at bedside and then uh, before, just moments before or after or hours before and after, same time you know, relationship. In other words, nine percent can happen hours or days hours or days before, and thirteen percent can happen hours or days uh, after the actual medically determined time of death. So, no difference between remotes and a bedside. No significant uh, differences. Obviously, some things in the at the bedside. For example, at the bedside, you may actually see what we call spirit-leaving body. You may actually see the spirit, consciousness, soul, whatever you want to call it, the, departing from the body. It often leaves from uh, the chest area, the heart area, third eye, crown. It you know, leaves heading upwards. It looks like a kind of a ghostly, translucent uh, membrane, sometimes shaped like uh, the body, the human body, sometimes not. Uh, and then it tends to go up to the roof, or excuse me, to the ceiling. It pauses there, moves around. Sometimes there's some communication between this now. I'm going to call it a, um, 
a spirit being that's no longer incarnated. A lot of times in our research, the experiencer, especially if it's a loved one, will talk about a final communication with that spirit who has just left the body. And it's usually a thank you, I love you, goodbye type conversation. And then it goes. Now, so the reason I went into that was because that's not an experience that you're going to have remotely. That's not an SDE feature that you're going to experience unless you're at bedside. But okay, we'll pick up on that point. Excuse me, William. On the other side, we'll take a uh, another quick timeout. William Peters, founder of the Shared Crossing Project, sharedcrossing.com, the website. Back with more of our conversation right after these. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. William Peters is a pioneer in the field of Shared Death Experiencer, uh, Experiences, founder of the Shared Crossing Project and the author of At Heaven's Door. And um, I wanted to ask you about whether more than one person can have a shared death experience with the dying individual at the same time. Uh, so if, let's say, there's a, um, a person and, and there are maybe a half a dozen children uh, that, that have that special bond with that, with that individual, could they all have that shared death experience at the same time? Has that been documented? Yes, it is possible for, you gave an example of a half a dozen children, if, you know, they could all have it, even if they were not all at bedside or they were all remote, it wouldn't make a difference. We have seen some cases like that, not a lot. It seems like some people in the, some loved ones, if you will, will have the experience and others will not. And this is actually can be uh, a cause for um, some stress or, or dissonance, if you will. Um, but in the research, we find that about 11% of all SDE cases are multi-person, more than one. And we have seen that at the bedside, for example, if, you know, thinking of a case here that's pretty typical, you have uh, a, a grandmother dying, I say grandmother because there's a grandson there and then actually the daughter of the mother. So you've got three generations, grandmother, mother, and grandson uh, present. And the, the mother reports seeing light coming into the room and a cylinder of light and then her mother traveling up that light and looking back and saying essentially, thank you, I love you. Uh, I need to be going. And the son, excuse me, the grandson reports seeing the light um, and then reports seeing his grandfather, but doesn't report seeing the grandmother. Reports, who's dying, of course, reports sensing the grandmother, and but not really seeing. The, 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 what he's really seeing is part of the greeting party, which is, his deceased uh, grandfather, obviously the husband uh, of the grandmother who's dying currently. 
And these are mysteries. I mean, these are like, wow, why is it like that? And yet, I, you know, in our research, we see that the shared death experiencers, when there's multi-person experiences, have some similar phenomena, but some different, experience different phenomena or features. And we don't know why that is. I mean, there's some question as to whether people have different, for lack of a better term, psychic gifts, you know, intuitive gifts, whatever you want to call them. But it's still, uh, that would be really, I would not assert that as truth, more as a question, that as I've done more and more research, I think there's something else going on uh, rather than just psychic gifts being exercised. Right. You mentioned that that could cause some rifts, perhaps, in a family. Like, you know, why did great why did granddad come to you and not to me? And why didn't I get to participate in the shared death experience? Didn't he love yeah. me as much? Uh, how, how does, how does that, how do you resolve that? What do you tell people or, or, well, or how do you help people who have that, that, I don't know, yeah. regret or tension that they weren't, they weren't part of it. You know, I mean, I, it's a, you know, I'm a family therapist. So when I um, see this arise, the, what I do typically is I bring the family together as soon as I can um, and to, to sit down and say, um, all right, let's talk about all of our experiences. And to cut to the chase on this, what we typically find is that, first of all, it seems pretty clear that the dying doesn't seem to have the capacity to visit everybody. Now, there are some cases where we see that the deceased, uh, that the dying, the transitioning, visits dozens of people and even, you know, uh, has all, offers all, you know, synchronistic events, if you will, things like, um, you know, maybe, uh, I'm trying to think of a good one, like everybody sees... Uh, the, something in the room changed, like uh, the, the clock radio freezes at the time of her birth date or an anniversary date, and everybody sees that. Um, but and so in those situations, you know, it's it's obviously not an issue; everyone sees it. But um, the reason I was sharing that is because it's in some cases um, the dying can can make multiple visits to people. And, and does, but that's more the rarity. What seems to be happening is that a few, a person or two or three in a family will have an experience, a shared death experience. And then you circle the people up and say, you know, let's talk about this. So the first thing I do is I normalize and say, this is really common, more common than not, that some people get the experience and others don't. So it seems to me I can explain, I don't know why this is, but this happens, and it's not like these people are, are... It seems to me that the dying have limited capacity to get to everybody. Like, they just can't do it. Um, and I don't know why that is, but that just seems to be the case. But when you have the conversations with the family, typically what happens is the family works it out, talks about their, what, you know, what their issues are, their upsets are, because someone might feel like... You know, I'm thinking of a story. This is really classic. Uh, a, a, a man I had trained with his mother who was dying of ovarian cancer. 
I train them in the shared death experience protocols, which are these protocols to enable the SDE. Well, at the time of death, the son, um, call him Frank, Frank is in the kitchen making funeral plans, and but Frank has been with his mother preparing for her death, you know, taking care of her for the last year plus. Well, his sister had just come down from Oregon, and she had she had two kids that she left in Oregon and was not, had not seen her mother uh, in like a year. So she's there. She's been there a week. She's leaving the next day. The mother goes goes into an active dying process, and she dies. And gives you know I say gives as if the dying is able to give the SDE. We don't know that, but it certainly feels that way. But in this experience, this person, call her Meg, Meg sees her uncle, her mother's brother, enter into the room. He's a big, big man. He had been in the, in the Navy and says, looks at her and says, I've got it. I've got your mom. She's coming with me. And Meg is like, whoa, this is incredible. This, you know, there it is, you know, the beloved, her beloved brother that's, here. That's the welcoming Ooh, party. Her. William, I'm sorry, pardon the interruption. This was a short segment. We're going to pick okay. up on that point when we come back. William Peters, founder of the Shared Crossing Project, back with more of our discussion in mere moments. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. William Peters, Shared Crossing Project. So we were talking about this the woman dying of ovarian cancer, the one son had spent basically a year taking mm-hmm. care of her. Another daughter was not able to to be there with her that often, but she had a glimpse or caught a glimpse of what you call the the welcoming party for the the um, the person that was about to cross over. She saw yeah, her uncle, this great big burly party, man, I Richard. think, and someone else. Well, in this case, it wasn't just a welcoming party. It was... Uh, it was a welcoming party, but it was the conductor, this, this force that seems to enter into the SDE or appear in the SDEs. We see this. I mean, we're doing the data on this right now because I've really been fascinated by this feature of the conductor, that force that seems to be facilitating the transition of souls from human existences into the afterlife. And in this case, it was Meg's uncle, her mother's brother. They were very close. And so, so, you know, Meg has this profound experience of seeing her mother being drawn out of her physical body, that spirit, soul, translucent. And she described this as, you know, her mother's spirit that looked like her uh, body, if you will, being pulled out and then going into the arms of her beloved uncle and the uncle, you know, ushering her away, pulling her away, holding her, and then rising out through a cylinder of light uh, yeah, out of the room, and she gets this sense as Meg says, "Oh my gosh! I mean, my my mother is dead, uh, not no longer here, but she's in good hands. It's very comforting. It's mind blowing. All the euphoric feelings that are that are common with the SDE, uh, she's experiencing. And then she goes and shares it with her brother, Frank. And Frank's like, "Wow, I 
you know, that's great, but I, you know, he's thinking, you know, I trained, you know, with William and Share Crossing Project to have this experience with my mother, and she gets it. So at first, and I spent a, a year, and I spent a year later, caring for he, Why didn't she come to me? Why didn't I get to see that? Exactly. Very human. Very human. Like, why couldn't she just come to me? I was just one room over. So these are all the mysteries. I don't know why she couldn't, but like I said before, um, it seems to be there's some limitations on the capacity that the dying have to, um, you know, bestow the shared death experience on, on loved ones. But in this case, France, uh, Frank, um, Frank, and I worked, his sister went home, and she was grateful. And then Frank was really glad his sister had the experience. But he did say to me, like, ah, oh, that's really weird. I mean, and then as we worked through it, he realized, well, you know, I had a great end of life with my mom, and Meg didn't. And I'm glad she got that experience because she really needed it more than I did because she felt bad she couldn't be there. So in some way there's some, some sort of, for lack of a better term, divine justice and who gets the experience. It seems like the loved one that may need it the most uh, gets it. And, and for Frank, later on, his, his mother actually visited him in a post-death vis- visitation, which was spectacular for him. And so he felt like, oh, wow, you know, I didn't get the SDE, but a few months later my mom came to me and showed me where she was, and it just was like, great. So, um, and we see that a lot. About 41% of our uh, SDE experiencers, uh, well, that's different. He wasn't an SDE experiencer, but he trained for it. I should say that statistic differently than a lot of people that do our trainings, upwards of 80% will have some phenomena that's profound, either SDE or post-death dream, excuse me, post-death vision or visitation or some profound synchronicity that lets them know that their loved one uh, is alive and well in a, in, a, in a good place. Can you have a shared death experience with somebody who actually, they have an NDE, but they come back? Yes, that is a great question, and my immediate response to that is, yes, it's possible. And I can tell you I've, I've had a couple of those um, in my clinical practice. I've never had those in the research um, to date. I, my sense is we're going to get them, because I have had that question before, Richard, and it's a brilliant question. And I can tell you that I put everything I know about this experience um, I put it. I, I'd say everything I know would lead me to see absolutely, because really what this is is accessing the space that the uh, person, the departed person, or the NDE, the person having the brush with death. It's just that ability for a loved one to connect with them where they are. Uh, so I know it's possible. I've had cases on it, not a, not a lot in my clinical practice. I had two that I can remember offhand right now and maybe a third uh, that I can't really recall, but I'm sure they're out there. I don't know if this is, uh, this is you know, we're maybe getting into the realm of total speculation, but, uh, or if this is something you've looked at, but I'm curious as to what extent the shared death experience has become sort of uh, misidentified or, or sort of confused with what we might refer to as a haunting or uh, you know, the, uh, a sighting of a ghost and so forth. Did they get jumbled together, do you think? You know, I don't hear that very much. And one of the reasons I don't hear that, um, and it's not in the research, um, is because these experiences 
are typically pretty clear. The descriptions that that I've heard and my team has heard are that, you know, that experience was more real than real. It, everything was hyper alive. It was more real than my human existence. Uh, I know there's an afterlife. It's not just a belief. I've been there. Uh, that's the ultimate reality. The human experience is the dream. So there's not that haziness that I think you were alluding to around, you know, ghosts and things like that. I think ghosts, that's a different phenomenon altogether, uh, which, you know, I think you're, you're pretty up on this. Uh, there are certainly a good deal of research, quality research, going back to the Society for Psychical Research out of uh, Great Britain beginning in the late 1880s that cited all sorts of apparitions, uh, most of them, you know, not most of them, but the highest frequency around death, and ghosts are certainly included in that. Do do any in any of these 250 plus case studies? Does anyone report having a, a lengthy telepathic conversation with the dying in, individual, uh, where they were able to ask them questions like, "Where are you? What does it look like? Who who else did you see?" Um, yes, to the first part of that question, lengthy SDEs. Yeah, there we have experiences. Mm-hmm where the dying um, seemingly take the experiencer on a journey of the cosmos in a certain way. And in some of those cases, it's as if the dying or the departing are trying to impart some sort of knowledge to the experiencer that typically has something to do with the metaphysics of things like, you know, the existence you're in is a school or just do the best you can till you get here or it's all about love. Uh, you do see a good deal of, you know, teachings on the kind of the perennial wisdom, if you will, love your neighbor as yourself, be kind, um, the material, materialism doesn't matter. There's, there's a fair amount of... Um, implicit teaching. In, but in terms of, you had a second part to your question there, Richard, that it, I'm not quite remembering. Oh, I'm just, the, the nature of the conversation or the nature of the question. So for example, uh, if, if the, uh, you know, if you were sitting beside a dying patient in a hospice and you had this STE and you, would you ask, you know, be able to ask them, what does it look like where you are? What is it, you know, uh, who else did you see on the other side? These sorts of questions, detailed questions. Yeah. So that would, in those cases, that would presume that you had an early SDE with the person. And we don't have, most early SDEs um, happen with patients, the dying, um, not exclusively, but most of them, when they're unresponsive. In other words, there's no capacity for communication left. Um, now, in terms of conversations between the, tra- the, you know, the transitioning, the dying in the SDE and the experiencer, there is some communication, but m- most of it is not to the level that you just asked, like, where are you? And there's, I think there's a reason for that. And the reason that 
I would uh, posit is that when you're in that state, that dimension, what we hear all the time is, in that space, I had answers to all my questions. Anything I asked, I uh, would have an answer for. In fact, I didn't even have to ask questions. I already knew everything. I knew the meaning of the universe. I knew the purpose of a human life. I knew, you know, all sorts of things about the nature of reality. That, when I return to my human existence, I kind of have some knowing about this, but the specifics are no longer there. In other words, we would call this state-specific information or knowledge or wisdom. And so, All right, I've got to, sorry, uh, William, got to jump in. We're approaching the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll uh, we'll take some questions from the uh, the YouTube live chat, and uh, my live stream producer Ryan will curate those for me and send those along, and I'll read them over the air. William Peters stays with us, founder of the Shared Crossing Project. As we head on into hour two, stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. William Peters, a pioneer in the field of shared death experiences, uh, stays with us, founder of the Shared Crossing Project and uh, author of At Heaven's Door. And we'll remind you again, if you go to Shared Crossing, sorry, Shared Crossing, uh, SharedCrossing.com, SharedCrossing.com, and you can sign up for the, uh, the seven-module live online course uh, Wednesdays beginning April 27th to June the 8th. Again, SharedCrossing.com. And uh, what is the uh, the code that uh, my listeners can use for a, a 10% discount? The shared crossing, that's all caps, then the number 10 for 10% off. Shared crossing, all in caps, 
and then the number 10. All right. Um, let's kind of reset because this is hour two and there may be some uh, people just joining the program. Give us give us the definition for a uh, shared death experience or SDE. Yeah, so a shared death experience occurs when somebody dies and a loved one, caregiver, in some cases a, a, a bystander, reports that they feel like they shared in the dying person's transition from their human existence in their, you know, in their human body into an afterlife. And this is typically, uh, you know, the phenomena are these phenomena that in our culture we relate to as near-death experience phenomena. So uh, out-of-body experiences, visionary realms, heavenly realms, past life review, excuse me, life reviews of either the dying or your time together with the dying. There's light is a big feature of this. You're often traveling in a cylinder of light or towards a big luminous light, and you see deceased loved ones as a greeting party, elevated beings of all types that can appear as angels or uh, light beings, spirit guides, what have you. Oh, and of course, the most common phenomena is that the experiencer, surviving loved one or caregiver, reports seeing the dying in this transition. Like, so they're, and they're moving along with them in many of these cases uh, as they progress, typically heading upwards in, in their journeys into this afterlife. Uh, you you were a hospice a volunteer. You mentioned, you know, obviously doctors, nurses, um, first responders. Let's say, for example, a firefighter with the jaws of life trying to, to take, you know, to get at an, a car accident victim. Uh, do they, on occasion, also experience an STE? Yes, they do. And this is one of the focus points of the Shared Crossing Project, and that is advocacy for the knowledge of these experiences for first responders of all kinds because I've done, there are a few studies out there that talk about um, spiritual experiences for first responders where they feel like the spirit of the deceased came to them and they somehow didn't know what to didn't know how to make sense of it and it kind of freaked them out and yes so in my experience when i've worked with first responders in this regards is by teaching them about the shared death experience and the various phenomena the first responders have these aha moments like oh wait a minute i was just with them that makes sense it's like oh i can let it go i thought that somehow there was something weird about this, and that does, you know. Um, so, yes, first responders have these, and I and they need education and support around this, so they don't feel like um, they're being freaked out by a wayward spirit. And and I will say that these cultures, this is by the um, by the expressions of the first responders we've interviewed, is that in some of these cultures, it's not really. Um, shall we say, professionally acceptable to share about these experiences. So we're trying to change that because we want people to know, first responders and others, to know these experiences happen. They're actually, you know, more common than we know. And 
you may be gifted by uh, someone dying coming to you to appreciate you or show you the other side or um, perhaps even deliver a message to a, a loved one, especially if it's a first responder dealing with a sudden, unexpected, tragic death. You may be the last person they communicate with in this way. Uh, we know that, that people that have near-death experiences and come back, oftentimes that just changes the trajectory of their life you know, forever, uh, has such a profound impact. Sometimes I've read there have actually been phys- physical changes in that person. In other words, they look different when they come back, and their life is never the same, and the things that they were interested in, they leave all of that behind. Sometimes it can be the end of relationships because those two people are they're strangers now what about the person that has the shared death experience can it have that kind of long-lasting impact can it totally irrevocably change the trajectory of their life and who they are as a person yeah this is a wonderful question and you just to just to affirm what you just uh the research you cited for the near-death experiences of which i've had two near-death experiences um Yes, the profoundness of the near-death experience is significant, and the changes, transformations you identified are well-known amongst us who research at the NDEs. Uh, in the shared-death experience, we don't see that, what I would call, um, challenge in coming back to your life and the need to... Um, you know, primary relationships don't seem to be as challenged. I think there are significant transformations, but and this is important because these transformations are typically invitational in the sense that we do see SDE experiences coming back and saying things like, I now know the purpose of the human life generally, and I now understand that I have a purpose here during my lifetime, and I'm either going to, I know what it is, I'm going to get about living it right now and make significant changes, uh, or they're going to commit themselves to finding out or yeah, searching, if you will, for a higher calling in their life. Uh, but to be clear, unlike this, the near-death experience, it, we don't seem at this point. Now, I, if we do more research on this, I could take back these words I'm speaking right now. But it seems like shared-death experiences, perhaps because they're witnesses to these experiences, they're witnessing a dying person's transition, they're not, in, they're not experiencing a trauma, they're not experiencing uh, a direct threat to their life. The impact in that way is less. Um, and that doesn't mean that the transformation is less for the SDE experiencer. I think it's less when you, fit, when you consider the physical challenges that so many NDEers have to come back and deal with because they've had a severe uh, brush with death that's compromised their physiology in some significant way. Uh, for the SDE, they come, they're healthy in mind and body. They come back, and now their work is to integrate this experience but it doesn't seem to have some of the uh, overt negative uh, ramifications that the NDEs have. How about your NDEs? Were they traumatic? Well, yes. Um, my first one was a high-speed skiing accident at 17 years old uh, where I fractured uh, the 
lumbars, lumbars uh, four and five, and some compression fracture that went also into uh, a sacroiliac one. So, yeah, that that almost, uh, as my orthopedic uh, surgeon indicated, that I was one thirty second of an inch away from being a paraplegic. Um, so that that was a, and I've lived in you know some degree of chronic pain and physical limitation for most of my adult life. That's a significant trauma at the level, not just physically with the pain and such, but also at the level of uh, identity. You know, who am I? I mean, I was the athlete prior to that time, and um, I never was able to regain that sense of uh, strength and confidence and and, uh, vitality in my physical body. It's really been a struggle to maintain health and, and ease of movement. Uh, so those are significant traumas. Uh, and my second experience left me, uh, it was an idiopathic thromocytopenia for those who are uh, in the medical profession. That's a, a crashing platelet, low platelet condition that is terminal, life-threatening. And that left me uh, deeply fatigued and uh, somewhat lost uh, because of the because and it wasn't so much it was there wasn't a great deal of pain in it it was more just low energy and uh, a disorientation as my body tried to rebalance after the the severe imbalance in my blood so yes I my NDEs were quite traumatic for me and quite impactful upon my life and they remain so today uh, I, I mean you were near death but did you get the whole experience sort of you know the 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 welcoming party the tunnel of light oh, yeah uh, so um you know my near-death experience my first near-death experience um now richard remind me did i share my first near-death experience i don't think i did um, well the, the, and, the skiing accident yes the skiing yeah accident. that's it so that's my first near-death experience so yeah i mean i did not have a welcoming party in mind at all uh which is is I mean, it's not so much every SDE, every NDE is unique. So to say that, wow, I didn't have a full NDE, well, that's not true at all. I had a rather full NDE, but I didn't have a welcoming party, and the only elevated being I saw or felt was what I would call God, uh, the ultimate source, which I was negotiating for my life with. Um, so, you know, in terms of whether I could come back or not. So, yeah. Um, help me out. Am I answering the question here? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. How did that negotiation go? I mean, what did you put on the table? Well, I just said I wanted to come back because I really, I, you know, unlike so many near-death experiencers, I I felt like I hadn't come to, I hadn't completed what I incarnated to do in this life. And even though I was 17 years old, I was, that was the one thing I was clear about was that I did not complete my mission, if you will. I wanted to come back and do something. I don't know what it was, but I also had the sense that I don't want, I knew that I'd have to come back and incarnate again, and I said, I don't want to do those childhood years again. Um, so I had a sense that a lot of my, you know, reason for being on the, on that lifetime was coming up for me. I was preparing for the work of my life, if you will. And I didn't want to go through childhood again if, in fact, I was leaving at that point, dying at that point, leaving that life, and they would have to come back again and, and somehow uh, recreate the conditions to pursue or complete that life mission. 
Uh, and I, you know, you're hearing a lot about my kind of cosmological views, if you will, my uh, theological, philosophical views on the purpose and meaning of a human life. Uh, but it seemed pretty clear to me in that point that when we come to this earth or this human experience to, um, you know, develop, practice, have certain experiences, and I was getting close to those in this in that lifetime when I had my first NDE. And so the negotiation was not so much me negotiating as much as me pleading with God, let me go back, let me go back, let me go back. And at some point I felt this push back uh, from uh, the light. I was really in the light, comfortable. I felt the pushback from the light, and the, a, uh, a telepathic communication makes something of your life. And in either of the NDEs, was do you do you know whether there was also a shared death experience with someone close to you? No, I did not. That's a, a question that's never been asked of me, Richard. That's a brilliant question, and no, I do not. I did not feel I shared that with anybody. I don't think anyone shared it. No one ever came up to me afterwards or at any point in my life to express that I was with you during that SDE or I saw you there. So you. So the. If a person has an NDE and comes back, they wouldn't necessarily know that they that there was a shared death experience. Well, that's a great question too. I mean, it could very well be um, that um, somebody could say, "Well, I was with you. I saw you there." And you know, this is the work of mediums. Who uh, I'm, of, of, there are more than just mediums that can do this. But I have talked to people who, mediums in particular, who have said, um, oh, yeah, I, I see that experience. And you may say, well, that's bizarre. They could see that experience. Well, they're accessing um, perhaps the Acacia record or something like that. I use these terms loosely just not because I don't believe they don't exist. I use it because I'm not an expert in these um, in the Acacia records or other um, modalities of this sort that give access to lifetimes or these types of near-death experiences that are in another dimension. But I have had that experience where a couple mediums have said, oh yeah, I'm seeing that now. You had this type of experience, you were here, you were there. I'm like, oh wow, this is all recorded somewhere. So they're not having a shared death experience with me in real time, so to speak. They're able to go back and see what I went through, which is very compelling uh, in and of itself. Right, right. How do um, medical doctors, uh, you know, people of science, and I know medicine is also an art, but these are men and women of science, and some of them, you know, are materialists. Uh, they don't have a, a spiritual bone in their body. Uh, and I mean, we, we've we've seen studies. For example, I think there was one in Switzerland where they tried to replicate an out-of-body experience by stimulating certain cortexes in the brain and said, "Aha! You see, it's it's just electrical electrical activity. It's an illusion. It's uh, the product of a dying brain or whatever." But the materialists that have these experiences, how do they try to explain it away? Do they have a narrative? Well, you you're on it. I mean, the SDE is 
unexplainable to the scientific materialists of today and medical sciences who adhere to that um, scientific view. To be clear, the the hitch, if you will, occurs because in the modern uh, scientific materialist view, which is dominant in in, uh, medical sciences, is that consciousness is dependent upon and created by the human brain. So when there is human death, which is cessation of brain functioning, there can no longer be consciousness. So, or, or any continuation of any uh, aliveness that would be identified with a soul, spirit, self, uh, related to that human life just ended, there's no scientific explanation for that. So for that community, these experiences don't have any credibility because they can't exist in their paradigm. But the problem, as we know, is in the paradigm. It's not in the experience. The paradigm is too limited. Now, this being said, there's plenty of research that, uh, that suggests that, you know, while I think 73% of Americans in the last Pew study on uh, questions about religion and spirituality, one of which is a belief in an afterlife, you know, like I said, almost 73% of three-quarters of uh, North Americans and Europeans believe in an afterlife. And, and, it's, and, and medical doctors, there was a similar study done in, I believe it was University of Chicago, um, I think it was 10, 15 years ago, that found that, you know, 65% of doctors had similar beliefs. So, you know, two-thirds of, of doctors believe in an afterlife. But they're able to somehow, um, there's, though their personal beliefs, spiritual religious beliefs, don't jive with their medical beliefs. And I don't know how people, you know, make sense of that, but your, your question about how the medical sciences and medical personnel make sense of this, uh, I've explained, they don't. They don't have a model that holds this. Uh, now, there are, a lot, there are plenty within the system, that medical system, that acknowledge the limitations of medical sciences, and those are the people that uh, I think are the doctors you want to be dealing with, and those are the ones that we're dealing with, because we need to find a way to make these experiences a part of healthcare, especially at end of life. Uh, William Peters, pioneer in the field of the SDE and also the founder of the Shared Crossing Project, sharedcrossing.com, sharedcrossing.com. We'll take another time out, come back, and we will get to some questions from the YouTube live stream. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. So, William, there are certain people that have uh, spontaneous... Uh, out-of-body experiences. It's not even necessarily associated with trauma. They just, all of a sudden, you know, they wake up and maybe they're floating above their body. Uh, 
is is there a connection between those spontaneous OBEs and an NDE and a shared or an SDE, a shared death experience? You know, you know. Once again, you're spot on. There, there are these spontaneous OBEs. Um, most OBEs have some sort of trauma uh, induction, if you will, but a lot don't. And and there are people who can develop practices, can and do develop practices where they can uh, initiate uh, OBEs. There's a whole you know organization. I forget. It's um, you know, Luis Minero is runs a whole program. Um, I forget the name of it. Something about consciousness, um, but. But yeah, and they train people how to how to have OBEs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's not much, you know, in the SDE arena. What's so profound about the SDEs is that one, they're not very well known at all. In fact, I'd say that you know, my book at Heaven's Door is the most widely read and uh, you know, I'll clear the first really research based. Uh, expose on the shared death experience, and it's only been out since January. Uh, but thankfully, the the, the receptivity um, in the general public and even end of life professionals has been quite positive. Thankfully, uh, so you know, I I think they're the same type of experience, especially when um, when they happen, shall I say, naturally. I think the, I think there are ways that you can create, you know, dissociative experiences or experiences where your sense of self, if you were that observing part of your consciousness, is uh, detached from your physical body or at least outside of it, perceiving from outside your physical body. Um, but I just think the SDE um, is is in, is a natural, organic process similar to the NDE that is invoked by usually some sort of trauma. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense in a certain way. But I'll yes. tell you one, I'll tell you that there will be more research in this area, this whole understanding of how one's consciousness can seemingly uh, have a perception, uh, a view of perception or perspective that is outside of the physical body and looking back at the physical human body. This is a rather um, profound um, reality that needs to be explored. All right, let's go to the YouTube live chat, and uh, you're going to get a a kick out of some of the handles here uh, from the YouTube live chat. Not Gordian, K-N-O-T, as in a uh, Gordian knot, not Gordian asks, uh, William, have you ever heard of negative stories of NDEs or SDEs when somebody saw glimpses of uh, hell instead of heaven? Yes. So there is a good deal of research um, on negative or what they call distressing near-death experiences. And the author on that. Um, if you're interested in the literature, is I forget her first name, but her last name is Bush, and she just NDE researcher Bush distressing S, uh, NDEs. You'll find her literature quite good, 
and she identified um, a number of, of types of distressing NDEs. It's important to note that the high number for distressing NDEs is, you know, I think it's something between 3 and 10 percent. And she's up on this literature. I don't want to overstep my bounds here because she really is the expert. And she had one herself. And as a result, she uh, did a great deal of research on this. And, is, you know, like I said, she did a good deal of research. So she's the, your, ref, your source for that. But they happen in NDEs for sure. And even if you look at Edmund Alexander's uh, uh, NDE when he had that... Um, was in a coma from a, a severe bout of spinal meningitis and E. coli, you know, and was unconscious for quite some time. He had a part of his uh, NDE where he describes what he calls the earthworm eye view, something like that, where it's dark and murky and confusing and he's lost and it's stuck, you know, he's stuck. And, but eventually that gives way to light and then he goes into this really heavenly realms. Um, in the SDE, you know, I've heard, you know, we've studied deeply 250 cases. I've heard well over a thousand of these cases, and I have rarely heard a negative SDE. And when I do, it's, it's a misinterpretation of the phenomena, and I help uh, normalize the phenomena, uh, kind of allow them to look at their experience differently, and they usually have a trans a transformation of their view from, you know, negative or scared or cautious to something more like, oh, curiosity or possibility of wonder and positivity in it. Um, because it's so easy, uh, if you don't know about the ND, SDE, just to be freaked out by it. Because if you don't, you know, believe in an afterlife or you don't um, know what to do with when you see angels or elevated beings or have a life review or see heavenly realms, all that can be a bit freaky if you're of a more, you know, mainstream mindset. So I try to open the aperture at which they view the experience, support them with the evidence that these experiences happen, and give them the feature list and have them begin a process of re-examining their experience from the possibility that this may that these happen, they're normal, and that there may actually be some positive gifts to be tapped from these experiences. Uh, any case studies involving someone on death row, where let's say the the person administering the lethal injection or you know pulling the switch on the electric chair, if they had an SDE, I don't have any cases. Of the of those, I do not have any cases of that type of, um, you know, you're de- describing and a, you know, a, a, this is a death row type case, which is obviously tragic. Uh, do have a number of cases, you know, half dozen, maybe up to a dozen, maybe, of patients using uh, medical aid and dying. And what's so interesting about this, Richard, is some of these cases suggest, uh, I'll share one with you. Uh, This is a woman who was uh, exercising the medical aid and dying in California, and the SDE was 
reported by a good friend in Massachusetts, that's the east coast of the United States, of course. And what the experiencer suggested or shared with us, we'll call her Sonia, and she reports traveling with this, her friend, Denny. In fact, you know what? This is in the book, in my book, At Heaven's Door, so the full case is there if your viewers are interested. But what she reports is she reports going to meeting Denny, having this huge journey across rivers and deserts and then climbing ladders and elevating into the sky and seeing heavenly realms, finally coming to a party at which Denny is the uh, guest of honor, not uncommon, and there's all these people scurrying about to prepare for Denny's arrival. But what's interesting, and Sonia doesn't go into this as much in the book, but, you know, I've talked to her many times since, because this is a research question that came up afterwards, after I wrote the book, was that, well, what's the possibility that she arrived early? And what, and you can see this if you look into Sonia's uh, account in my book, you can see that Sonia describes the, the people hosting the party as scurrying about, trying to get the meal ready. The guests haven't arrived. There were supposed to be these dancers to perform a dance for Danny as she arrived. But nothing's quite ready. And it may suggest that people that use physician aid in dying or other tragic, unexpected um, death occurrences may arrive too early. In other words, you know, and this challenges our sense that that the people on the other side, these wise beings, actually know everything. Because if they knew everything, then they know when we're arriving. They know that you know, Denny, in this case, had chosen to to use medical aid in dying and was arriving earlier than anticipated, if there was already an anticipated time. But I have a few cases like that, which, to boil it down to the you know singular, singular statement, suggests that the dying, when they use medical aid, uh, and dying, uh, seem to surprise or seem to arrive a bit earlier than the welcoming party had anticipated. That's interesting. Fascinating. Very interesting. Right. We'll, uh, we'll take another time out uh, and uh, come back with more questions from our YouTube live chat, William Peters. And uh, he is the founder of the Shared Crossing Project, sharedcrossing.com. We'll remind you about that online course as well when we come back. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, once again, here are the details on uh, the Shared Death Experience, Transformational Journeys of Life and Love Beyond Death. It's a seven-module live online course presented by our guest tonight, William Peters and uh, the founder of the Shared Crossing Project, author of At Heaven's Door, and it begins Wednesday, April the 27th. Again, it's seven um, seven weeks, so you've got April 27th to June the 8th, every Wednesday from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and if you use the code SHARED CROSSING, all in caps, and the number 10, SHARED CROSSING 10, uh, you get 10% off that course. All right, uh, let's go back to the YouTube live chat. And Renee Image uh, writes, I had an NDE and I was happy to go. I even went through the tunnel and saw the light. 
but a voice told me I needed to go back. Uh, does that happen often? Yes, uh, that does happen quite a bit with the near-death experience. And they're often told, uh, the experiencer, that it's not their time, uh, that they need to go back to their human life and complete something. And, or, you know, live out some, some you know, the, the reasons I can't say exactly, but most people will say that they realize they had to come back to, to do something, to complete something. The, the, it seems like the human existence uh, serves us in some, uh, you know, educational way. That sounds a little, a little bit dry, but there's some learning, some evolution of our soul spirit that, that we incarnate as humans to, uh, to experience. It's a transformational process uh, towards, you know, positive uh, growth in a certain way, in an evolutionary sense. So if you're asked to go back, I'm sorry, I know a lot of, in my clinical practice, there was a time when a lot of near-death experiencers uh, would be coming to me to share their disappointment that they had to come back, that they missed the euphoria, the good feelings, the peace, uh, and the absence of strife and suffering of, uh, that are, is inherent in the human realm. Um, getting into uh, NDEs for a moment here, the near-death experience, um, because they've been reported throughout, throughout history. Uh, but has the advent of anesthesia perhaps diminished or, or um, I don't know, um, reduced the number of NDEs experienced because because of, you know, coming out of the fog of anesthesia, perhaps people forget about them. Is there any way of even knowing that? I think your, the comment you made at the close there, which is, it's difficult to know. I think that's what is true, is it's hard to know what the advent of anesthesia, uh, how it impacts one's experience or one's ability to remember their NDE. Uh, one thing that's really uh, salient here is that Dr. Pim von Lommel uh, wrote a, you know, did research, actually a fabulous research article. He's a cardiologist, and he did a study on um, NDEs and his patients and other patients receiving cardiac uh, procedures and he found that I believe a 17% of patients in his study who received a cardiac uh, interventions, usually surgical, and I, I, I do believe all of these uh, included anesthesia, but 70%, 17% of them reported a near-death experience. And that article was published in The Lancet, which is a very well-respected international medical journal. And then um, Pim wrote a beautiful book called Consciousness Beyond Life, The Science of the Near-Death Experience, and that book came out about a decade ago. It's a spectacular book, I might add. So uh, I would turn uh, that viewer's questions in that direction because Pim Von Loma looks really at the role of medical interventions uh, on people's capacity to have NDEs. The science of the NDE, uh, that's interesting because, it, I mean, does that 
suggest that at, at some point we will understand the mechanics of an NDE or an uh, an SDE. Uh, I don't know. People often, you know, they talk about quantum physics. That seems to be the sort of the underlying, you know, answer to everything that we now consider to be paranormal. Uh, but but uh, I mean, are there are there is there a, a field of of science that actually believes that they can they can understand this, they can measure it, they can I don't know come up with a formula at some point for this? Well, I mean, honestly, this is kind of beyond my expertise. I mean, I'm a psychotherapist. I work with, you know, persons typically at the end of life or in grief and bereavement who have had these experiences and need to process, integrate them, and, uh, you know, make meaning of them so they can go on living with the, with, with the, benefits of these experiences, because they're typically referred to as gifts. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, and I help people, you know, throughout that entire process, the dying, the survivors, all, everyone. Uh, but the actual science about, you know, how these happen and why they happen, this, for me, a huge question, which I am researching now, is why do these experiences happen for some and why they don't happen for, and not everybody, I mean, why do some people have them? Some people don't. Um, that's a whole huge question, and obviously that involves. Um, I mean, I'm not looking for a theory of everything, if you will, to describe why the SDE happens, why the NDE happens. I would love to stumble upon it, but my goal is really more how to help people have these experiences, how to have help people integrate them into their lives, and to highlight for the uh, medical community, end of life community, and, and general public at large. Uh, the real gifts of the SDE, the sense that, you know, human death is not an end but a doorway into uh, a benevolent afterlife, and that um, relationships with our loved ones seem to continue, and that the SDE uh, is a gateway experience into uh, another type of relationship, not a human relationship. I mean, you know, human death ends a human life. But it doesn't end a relationship between a human and the surviving consciousness. So, well, I've got to take another uh, time of your pardon the interruption. This, when we come back, you know, maybe you can sort of uh, just give us uh, – we, obviously, we want people to take the, the seven-week uh, course at sharedcrossing.com, but uh, maybe some, some uh, a few teases about how we can increase – our, our chances of, of having an STE if we have, you know, a loved one that's getting to, ready to cross over. Uh, William Peters stays with us from the Shared Crossing Project. Back with more in a moment. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Share death experiences uh, with William Peters, and we'll go back to the YouTube live chat. Joe asks, can deceased friends actually visit us in our dreams, or is that just us thinking and dreaming of them? Um, or maybe another way of sort of approaching that uh, that, that question would be, uh, it, I mean, can that be part of the shared death experience is, is uh, you know, through the in, in a dream state? Yeah, so super question, um, and one that we, uh, you know, my research team is discerning about, and we have a number of 
um, you know, questions and and frameworks that allow us to tease these apart. So you can have an SDE when you're sleeping, but it wouldn't be in a dream state. It would be a visionary realm of sorts. And I say that because people, when we ask them, will say, oh, no, this was more than a dream. It was more real than my typical dreams, and it wasn't fragmented. It wasn't, you know, it didn't have kind of the, the incoherence and people from different state parts of our lives and distortion. The, the, that's typical dream life. These SDEs, as with dream visions and visitations, uh, if they happen in, while one's sleeping, they're radically different than dreams, so completely different um, phenomena. Because of the clarity, because of the heightened sense of reality, if they will, because uh, the people say they're more real than real. And, um, and so they're, so they're you know, qualitatively different in that regard. Uh, and then in terms of whether they're an SDE or a vision or visitation depends on the, the messaging in it or the, yeah, the phenomenological value, as we say. So in an SDE, you, you, there has to be the sense that you're participating in some sort of journey. You're observing, you're watching, you're accompanying, or you're guiding. Sometimes you get called in actually to guide the dying along the way, but it's really about the, the, the deceased person's uh, initial... Uh, journey from this life into the into an afterlife. Visions and visitations are are different. They usually have messages involved, and they usually appear right in front of or in some way to the surviving loved one, and they they appear somewhat stationary. They're not moving. They're there. They have a message. They're usually wearing some sort of presenting with some sort of identifiable clothing or expression or something that is known to the experiencer as validation for who this person is. Um, yeah, so they're different. They're different in that way. But great question, and one we, we uh, fared out quite a bit. All right, so I know this is uh, something that you, you delve into in the seven-week course, again, at uh, sharedcrossing.com, Wednesdays, 5 to 6.30 Pacific, uh, PM uh, April 27th to June the 8th. Use the code Shared Crossing and the numeral 10, all caps. Shared Crossing and the number 10 for a 10% uh, discount. Uh, and that is how how, how can you um, maybe a- increase your chances of having a shared death experience? Yes. So what we have found in the research is that about two thirds of our shared death experience research participants have some sort of mindfulness meditative practice. And that means they either pray or meditate or do yoga or a martial art or walk in nature. They have some sort of practice that allows them to both um, be receptive um, and attune, if you will, to their self, their surroundings, and to others. Uh, and also they have these receptive qualities that involve kind of a, a heightened awareness of their feelings and sensations, their phenomenological experience. All that seems to point towards uh, an increased ability to have an SDE. The other thing that really helps is 
you know, and I, this is a big part of the teaching I do when I'm working, you know, when I'm teaching groups around this, how to, how to have an NDE, SDE, I shouldn't say ND, SDE or other end of life phenomena, is that you really work on your psychological or emotional unfinished business with your loved ones. Because that unfinished business, you know, regrets, um, ill will, a uh, sense of, you know, you know, bad, bad blood, if you will, between people, uh, unfinished business, needs to be addressed. Because if it doesn't get addressed, it serves as a hook to keep the dying here and to keep some interference in the clear spiritual communication um, between the dying and the surviving loved one. And then uh, there's a number of other steps I'll talk about in, in this workshop and others about how it is that you essentially, um, if you're the dying, you learn how to maintain your consciousness through death, or if you lose it, how to reconnect with it, and then turn your attention to your loved one or loved ones in the human realm and invite them to join you in the spiritual, spiritual in your spirit realm. And that... Um, that's a series of steps. It's too long for this dialogue, but one that I do go into in a, in a variety of workshops. Most notably, the Pathway Workshop, which I'm not offering now, but my team and I will offer it next fall. Um, but yeah. But another thing is, you need to know about these experiences. I say the first step in any training to have an SDE. I I think you can have them spontaneously for sure, and all and most of our research participants. Uh, have had them, um, but to know that it exists as a possibility, and to know a lot about it, and to know how you might be, what the phenomena are, the features are that you can be aware of if you're with somebody dying, or if you're remote and don't know someone's dying, but you end up having these features, then you can you can welcome them, and they serve as kind of portals to go deeper into this experience. Really important data point: forty-one percent of all SDE experiencers in our research have more than one, which suggests that once you have one, you can have more. So the gate here to get through is how do you have your first SDE? Because after that, you're likely to have more. And I'm a perfect example of that. I've had numerous ones because now I feel like I'm, I've kind of, I know the doorways. And when that door opens, I'm going to say, yes, I'm ready to go. Uh, so, so a great question and an important one. So I appreciate it. Um, but, you know, one other thing to say to your listeners here, Richard, is at the sharecrossing.com, we have a story library. You can go right to our website. Go right there. On the story library, you can hear about eight different SDE experiences from our, uh, from our research participants. They're short. They're like, you know, three, four, five minutes. But they really give you an idea for the SDE, um, initially anyway. There's, you know... The best description that I could provide was actually in the book because I had a lot more time to do so. I can provide a lot more background information. But it's you know, but I think if your listeners really want to have these SDEs with themselves, you know, themselves with their loved ones, what have you, it's really important to know about them because getting comfortable with each of these features then will serve as a as a doorway, an entryway into the experience. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we we all we all want to live long, healthy lives. Um, but uh, do you now look not to not look forward to death, but are you excited 
at the prospect of death? I'm, you know, I, uh, my friends joke about this with me. They're, they tease me and say, you're ready to go right now, William. Um, and that's true. If, you know, if it's time for me to go, I, I can't, I don't notice within me any fear of death or any anxiety about death. I'm excited about it when it happens. The most important thing for me, and I would say to your viewers as well, is that we understand that we're here to do to be and do certain things, to have certain experiences, perhaps to evolve certain characteristics, you know, virtues or what have you, develop in some way. Make sure that you get that done first because uh, it seems like if you don't, uh, you might have to come back again and do it. Do it. And now you hear the bias there that might suggest that um, I'm, I'm not so excited about having to come back again. Um, well, everything I know suggests that the afterlife um, in the spirit realm is, is is a lot more enjoyable than being here. Not that there's not joy to be had here. This realm has, a, you know, as the Buddhists say, 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. We're fine with the joys. It's the sorrows that get us, to get us hooked up here and, and stay, you know, make us suffer, if you will. So um, I think, you know, my goal is to just live fully and, and, and hopefully have the ability and insight to uh, do what I came here to do, which I'm, I'm you know, feeling pretty strongly that the, the teaching I'm doing is, is, is what I'm supposed to be doing here about the SDE. Well, William, always enjoy uh, chatting with you. Uh, thank you so much for this. Richard, thank you so much for having me on your show. And, uh, yeah, just always a pleasure to be with you. William Peters, Shared Crossing Project, and the website, sharedcrossing.com. Uh, don't forget the book, At Heaven's Door. That's available uh, everywhere, Amazon and uh, wherever you buy your books. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos. I'll be back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.